uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people who told me that I wasn't going to be able to play tennis. I wasn't going to be able to be a professional tennis player. I wasn't going to be in the finals of a Grand Slam. And I just put my head down, worked hard. I was lucky enough to have my dad, my mom, my whole family who believed in me and told me that one day you're going to prove them all wrong. And I just did. And I'm glad that I'm inspiring other kids, other girls, other boys doing the same thing. Wow, Leila Annie Fernandez, a lot of people said no. She said yes and answered back in fine fashion last night. Jim Taddy with you. This is Toronto Today for the next hour. Then Matt Cause takes over with gameplay, then overdrive, and then Argonaut football against the Tiger Cats all live here on TSN 1050. So I, this week is just phenomenal. All kinds of stuff going on. And, of course, led by the Canadian tennis story at the U.S. Open. Leila Annie Fernandez uh, winning last night 7-6-4-6-6-4 over Sabalenka, the number two seed. And by my account, she's gone through the two, three, and five seeds to get to the final. She's 19. She turned 19 this week. And and equally impressive on the other side of the court will be Emma Rada. Radakanyu, I keep stumbling over that name, but I won't probably by the end of the weekend. Emma Radakanyu, who is 18, born in Toronto, lives out of uh, Britain, and uh, family moved at a young age. She turns 19 on November 13th, and she qualifies for the U.S. Open final as a qualifier. She played her way into the tournament and has had a, a really a pristine run uh, to get to it. So we'll develop this story for you later on. Uh, Mike McIntyre uh, will be by. He is the host of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of tennis canada so he's going to be up in a few minutes and we'll go deep on the tennis story as he's about to arrive we have some sound to go over uh, later on david naylor our tsn football insider uh, talking about the cfl and nfl week one game one last night bucks 31 cowboys 29 much closer than anybody thought but as you heard on TSN, Chris Collingsworth uh, in, in with Al Michaels saying as the Bucks had the ball and were trying to push for a touchdown but had to settle for their own field goals, or sorry, the Cowboys had to settle for their own field goal. Uh, he said you don't want to give the ball back to Tom Brady with 124 left on the clock, and the Cowboys booted their field goal to go ahead at the time, but then Brady marched the team down, put his squad in, in good position, and the Bucks nailed the game-winning field goal to win at 31-29. You'll remember yesterday we had all kinds of talk about how good the Bucks could be. Somebody said they might go 17-0, and and if they do, this might be the closest that the Bucks will come to a loss all season, if in fact that's true. I don't know that it is, but uh, this is a machine. There's no question about that. Well-oiled and, and well-executed, and there's really no panic about the outcome. You know what they're capable of. They know what they're capable of, and the execution is, is really very, very well done and fun to watch, unless you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, so CFL uh, week number six kicks off tonight. Hamilton and Toronto at BMO Field uh, against the Argonauts, the return of the Labor Day special. No speedy banks for the Tiger Cats, and we'll get into this with Mr. Naylor. Of course, uh, you know, what happens is, uh, you know, Hamilton had control of that game. They had complimentary football, a uh, pick six, and a run back on a punt. And so if you take those two out, the score was 32-19. You've got a 2019 ball game uh, with, uh, with the extra points involved as well. So uh, that would still be flattering to the Argos. They've got some work to do and think they can get it done. Tonight we've got the Leafs development camp. Kirsten Shilton will stop by later on, and then, of course, on to gameplay with Matthew Cause. So let's go back to the Layla Annie Fernandez story. And, again, tears of joy when you watch her win. Again, you know, they are all over. Maybe she's tired. Maybe she isn't. And, and the moment that you think that, then all of a sudden the shot comes out of no Nowhere, and it usually paints the line. It usually catches a portion of the line, and it's almost like it's in slow motion. You're going, oh, 
and then it lands, and then she goes, oh, and then the score goes up, and you went, oh, did I just see that? And it's the ultimate piece of timing. Unbelievable. What a story to buy into. So she will go up against, um, again, Emma Ranakanyu, uh, the 18-year-old out of Britain, and that'll be at 4. Uh, you can watch this tomorrow on TSN. You can listen to it. Special coverage here on TSN 1050 as Leila Annie Fernandez tries to do what Bianca did two years ago and win the U.S. Open Women's Singles Men's uh, Semifinal Action later today. We'll start no earlier than three. Felix Ojeali, you see him against uh, Medvedev. He is the two seed. Felix is the 12 seed. Again, no earlier than three. We've got uh, Gabby Dabrowski on TSN 1 and doubles, and that will start around two. So plenty of Canadian action at the U.S. Open. So post-match last night, Leila Annie Fernandez talking about Steve Nash inspiring her. It's a huge inspiration. I remember my dad used him as an example one time for a whole month, telling us that we got to fight, we got to work hard, just like Steve Nash. So it's an honor to have you here watching me and cheering for me. And hopefully we can have a tennis match soon. But not now. <laughs> Steve Nash in the uh, family box and cheering on and uh, just great to see, of course, coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, great to see the, 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 you know, the supports and, and the, the views of that box. And I mean, you just can't get enough of watching Leila Annie Fernandez uh, play. Uh, just one more before we bring in Mike McIntyre. Uh, this is uh, Leila Annie Fernandez on her mental toughness. Um, well, that's years and years and years of hard work and tears and blood, everything on court, off court, sacrifices. And you know what? I just wanted to be in the finals. I really wanted it, and I fought for every point. And I, and Arena just fought for the same thing. And I don't know how I got the last point in, but I'm glad it was, and I'm glad that I'm in the finals. What a moment. I mean, you just, you felt it was a tear of joy is what, I, what I've said before. Let's bring in Mike McIntyre, co-host of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. Mike, welcome. How are you today, sir? Hey, Jim. I'm, I'm good, and I've had so much fun talking to you this summer about Canadian tennis, but, but this is next-level stuff right here with what we've been seeing in New York. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you almost want to chuckle because it's just such a happy story where she's talking, the, the, the young tennis star who just turned 19 is talking about years and years of, of work. And, and that's not to debate that, but it, make, it makes you understand the focus that this kid and her team have had since the start. I mean, this is a, a really monumental story of, of, you know, achievement in, in terms of hard work. Not that anybody gets it easily, but, but really it, it pays off here. It, and it, it, it seems to come out of nowhere. You know that old story about overnight success that that took six to seven years to make that would be this story wouldn't it yeah but uh you know as we say like you you can't beat that many top level players by accident in succession this is not like a, a weak draw that she oh. got or or players that pulled out with injury she's beaten the best in the women's game in succession to get to this stage and it, i had a chuckle too when i heard her say years and years because she only just turned 19 but she has spent the better part of her life training to be a professional tennis player and, and putting that ahead of all else and making certain sacrifices. And, and Lord knows her parents have made a lot of sacrifices to, to get to this stage. And so uh, she's one of those players where it's, it's hard to believe this is happening so soon and so early, but it's also not a fluke because of the amount of time that this young woman has put into honing her craft. 
you know, the more you read about this, and you'll know more about this than I will. I mean, it's almost a, a real uh, organic type story uh, in that, uh, you know, there are uh, tennis uh, teams that, that overanalyze and not being critical. There, there's ways to go about this, but this is a real organic father teaching the daughter and, and the way he analyzes things, the way she listens to him, the way she's able to execute what he's told her. A really nice story that way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, when we think of how much, you know, we blocked out our parents when we were kids and teenagers and how much, yeah, yeah, mom, yeah, dad, like, I got it, whatever. Uh, and this is a, a young woman that takes every word from her father and, and goes to put it in place. And it's an amazing story because he wasn't a tennis guy himself, Jorge Fernandez. He was more of a, a soccer player and soccer coach, but saw that Leila Annie had a, a um, you know, a knack for it and decided to bring himself up to speed and learn everything he could. I mean, this is the kind of story you could make a movie out of almost, and it would be so gripping to watch. And so they've got such a close relationship. After, you know, her first few uh, wins in New York, she would thank her coach. And it's funny because a lot of people didn't realize her coach is her father. And I think they've been a really, they've done a really great job at separating when it's time for him to wear the the father hat and when it's time for him to wear the coaching hat. And it's clearly worked out well. It's one of those successful you know, father-daughter uh, coaching partnerships. One of my favorite parts of a post-match uh, conversation with her is the, the question that inevitably comes is, you know, how did you defeat your opponent? And we're talking about uh, two, three, and five seeds that she uh, beat, in, not necessarily in that order, but, but you know, you're talking about top five players that, that are seated in this event, and she went through them. Um, and, and her line would always be, I don't know. And, and this really tells me that th- this is a really um, in-the-moment type player as a opposed to some that are analytical or, or that have a game plan. She is, uh, I don't know if reactive is the word, but certainly in the moment when she plays, isn't she? Yeah, it's maybe a little bit of both for sure. I mean, she hasn't allowed the moment to overwhelm her. Uh, she's headed out there in each match believing that she can win and, and not just saying that as some sort of lip service, but the confidence that she has is absolutely 100% genuine, and that's allowed her to block out all of the other distractions as we saw last night against Sabalenka it was the number two seed that kind of crumbled under the pressure in the last game where she just fell apart and uh, Layla Annie who at the age of 19 maybe she just doesn't know any better on some level you know yeah, I wouldn't doubt that. And I was trying to, to understand because Sabalenka is not the first frustrated person that has been eliminated by Leila Annie Fernandez. And I think there's a point there where, where you think if you're on the other side of that net, you, you, you see a weakness and you think it's going to lead to your success. And the moment you see that, it corrects itself. And, and many times it's that shot that just finds the line. It's remarkable shot making, isn't it? Yeah, and she's had so many of those through the course of this tournament. It's uh, it's amazing because she's only five foot six. When you see her on TV or on the court, you think, well, how is this you know slight frame going to be able to handle the power of some of these top players like Osaka and Sabalenka last night? But she's not afraid of that power, and she sends it right back at her opponents. And just a great array of shot making. And uh, you know, in some ways, it reminds me of Bianca Andreescu two years ago. She's got all the shots, you know, in her toolkit as well. And even though there's some differences there for sure, Layla Annie also has a, a very varied game on the tennis court. And so if plan A isn't working, that's okay because she's got plan B and plan C as well. And, you know, one thing that's also working to her advantage, Jim, is the fact that most of these top players haven't faced her before. So they don't quite know what to expect. And I think she's also capitalizing on that element of surprise, which won't last much longer, that's for sure. 
Yeah, so we've got the uh, women's singles final tomorrow at 4 on TSN. You can listen to it on TSN 1050. And we've got two teenagers. One just turned 19. The other turns 19 November 13th. Uh, Layla Annie is ranked 73rd going into this event. And Emma ranked, Toronto-born, by the way, ranked 150th. I mean, that is definitely a U.S. Open, isn't it? This is the craziest final I've seen in my life, men or women's, in terms of two players I don't want to say they have no business being there, because clearly they do, but two players that you never would have predicted to get anywhere near the final. And the fact that there's a Canadian connection with, obviously, not just Leila Annie Fernandez, but her opponent as well, who's from Toronto, uh, you know, some might say this is kind of like a Montreal-Toronto battle here, and we just had one of those a couple months ago. So um, <laughs> that's another element that I find super interesting to hear. And look, if you haven't caught any of her matches yet, if you're not a, a huge tennis fan or haven't tuned into the sport Make sure you check it out tomorrow at 4 o'clock because you're going to be so impressed with the level that these two have brought on court and, uh, you know, maybe turn you into a tennis fan after all this. Well, it's engaging to watch. I mean, you can't take your eyes off it just because of what's at stake here. So so help us understand, Emma Raducanu, uh, you know, she has some of Leila Annie Fernandez in her, doesn't she? Yeah, neither one of them have like that one big weapon. They're not known as, as necessarily big servers or having like one huge stroke that stands out over the others. But like I said earlier, they've kind of got that, that repertoire that's really working for them. They've both taken very different routes to the final, and I'm not taking away from what Radicanu has done, but Leila Annie had the far tougher path in terms of getting through all those seated players, former champions, former number one players. I mean, it's just incredible the path that she had to take. Radu Kanu has been blitzing through this draw. It has been a bit of an easier draw on, on paper in terms of who she's faced, but she went through all three qualifying matches to get into the main draw. She's won six in a row now as well without dropping a set and, uh, and lost very few games along the way as well. So she spent way less time on the court than Leila Annie Fernandez has. It's a coin toss to me. You always like to put me on the spot with my predictions. I can't even in this one because it's, it's a real coin toss. I, you know, I, I'm going to go with uh, Leila Annie Fernandez just because she has battled adversity in a lot of her matches. There's the, that point where we, we talked about where she comes up with the shot. I, again, not taking anything away from, from Emma, but, but she's had a pristine run. And, and I mean, at some point, you're going to get backed into a corner, right? Well, I mean, we'll see what happens next, I think. Uh, who is, who is going to feel those nerves more if they step on the court? It's, it's one thing to go through these successive rounds. It's another when you know you're playing for that trophy in the, in the New York you know, U.S. Open Finals. So who's going to handle the nerves better? So far, they've both been fantastic on that front, but maybe one gives just a little bit more than the other. Clearly, I want to put my support behind Leila Annie. I've, you know, we've been talking to her on Matchpoint Canada for years, seen her come up. She's, uh, she's always been willing to take the time to speak with us, and, and we really appreciate that. And, you know, I'm a Montrealer myself, I have to admit, and a Habs fan, so I'd like to see Montreal win a final at oh. some point this summer. <laughs> We wish you well, Mike. Unfortunately, we have to continue on. Um, <laughs> Felix Ojeda-Aliassime against uh, Medvedev. Uh, early it, it could start would be three today. That's number 12 against number two. Uh, and Felix has responded to everything so far. This is a real test, though, isn't it? Yeah, there's more Canadian tennis players to talk about. I almost forgot. Um, <laughs> yeah, Felix is, is also up against the number two seed like Leila Annie was last night. So hopefully he can draw some inspiration from that one. Uh, they've only played each other once before, Jim. That was three years ago in Toronto at the National Bank Open when both players had yet to really break out on the scene. Uh, that one was won in a third-set tiebreak by Medvedev, so I'm expecting it's going to be a, 
a pretty good battle. Medvedev has been flying through the tournament, though, and, and he's come a long way in the last couple of years. You can tell that beyond the big three of Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal, he's definitely one of those guys that people are expecting to win Grand Slams. But Felix is no slouch either. This kid has been a highly touted prospect for Canadian tennis since he was a 12, 13 years old. Um, and, and he's been playing terrific. So, again, I'm expecting a really good battle between the two. And regardless of what happens, what a terrific week for Canadian tennis players and for the sport in, in our country here. Oh, it's, it's been a great ride. No question about that. I, I think that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of people that might have been not even interested in, in tennis that are watching this and going, wow, look at, look at how proud we can be of these athletes. And it just continues a great athletic achievement storyline that really goes back to the Olympics. Um, and, and, you know, some of this stuff is unexpected, but, but certainly very joyful. Uh, let's just get back to Felix for a second. So uh, if he is to survive that and, and, and push through and, and he certainly has a really good shot at it, uh, then you're looking at Djokovic and Zverev, uh, one against four, and Djokovic uh, has shown no dent in his game at all in this tournament, has he? Yeah, Djokovic hasn't shown a dent in his game in, in quite some time in terms of playing at the Grand Slams, Jim. Of course, he's won all three so far this year, which is just such a remarkable achievement. Like, I want to put this into a context that other sports fans can understand. If you win all four majors in a year, I mean, that's the equivalent in any other sport of, of, of a dynasty, of winning a championship for multiple years, um, which is so hard to do. And, and when you're an individual and every tournament you're going in against 127 other players, the fact that he's won the Aussie Open, the French Open, and Wimbledon, all on different surfaces too, and now has the chance to win the U.S. Open, which would make him the first man since Rod Laver 52 years ago to hold all four in one calendar year, this is one of those remarkable sporting events that we may never see again. It's certainly a thrill, and, and the, the best two chapters or maybe three chapters are, are left in this story, and, and we'll cover it, of course, extensively on TSN. Mike, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Jim. Thanks so much. Enjoy the, we- the weekend. I will. You too. That's Mike McIntyre, co-host of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. At McIntyre Tennis is the Twitter account. Just a couple of notes here just to, to sort of go over this again uh, because we've sort of drifted around here and what we were talking about. So we have Felix Ogialiassime's uh, semifinal against uh, Medvedev live on TSN 3 and 4. At the earliest it would be would be 3 today. We've got Gabriela Dabrowski's women's double semifinal uh, live on TSN at uh, TSN 1 at 2. And we have, of course, Leila Andy Fernandez against Emma, uh, sorry, Radicanu. I keep, I can't read my own writing is why I keep doing that. Emma Radicanu. So uh, that is at 4 tomorrow on TSN. You can watch it there or listen on TSN. 1050. So all kinds of stuff going on here. We'll sort it all out. That's what we do here. And of course, we have the Blue Jays winning last night um, in New York against the Yankees. And I'm just going to see if I can find that that ridiculous stat that that this hasn't happened where the the Jays uh, led all the way through in the uh, the four games, uh, and nobody has done that to the Yankees in New York since 1924. I always find that when something happens to the Yankees that's never happened before because they've pretty well been through everything, that, that you look at it and go, are you kidding me? That's almost 100 years. No team has gone into New York on a four-game series and dominated like the Jays just did. They won 6-4. They won eight straight. They haven't done that since 2015 and sit a half game out of the wild card spot. And this is a story we'll try to develop for you later on. Boston Red Sox in the, in the midst of a COVID outbreak. Uh, so I don't know exactly how this 
can affect the race, but it's just another layer of things to, to be concerned about for teams ahead of the Jays. The Jays have just done a marvelous job here. They won eight straight, 11 of their last 12, and have answered the bell, and certainly charging in like the 2015 version did. Uh, don't know where this story goes, but this is another story you can't take your eyes off. Um, we'll continue on and talk about the NFL opening game last night in Week 6 in the CFL. David Naylor, our TSN football insider, will join us next. This is Toronto Today, TSN 1050, tsn1050.ca. Also available on the TSN and iHeart Radio apps. That's just a credit to all the work that I put in. I think when you invest that much um, work and rehab and just everything that has gone into the last 11 months for me to get back onto the field, not surprised about the way that I went out there and did things that I normally do 11 months ago. So, no, I feel like I'm a better player than I was when I left the field. And I told you all that was the expectations I had for myself, and I'll continue to try to get better uh, game in and game out. Toronto today, Jim Taddy with you till 1 o'clock. That's Dak Prescott after his performance last night. Buccaneers defeat the Cowboys in Tampa 31-29. Dak, 42 of 58, 403 yards and three touchdowns. Not bad at all. And, of course, Brady on the other side. Again, not bad at all. Let's understand what happened there and also explore the CFL. David Naylor is our TSN football insider, one of them. Uh, David, how are you today, sir? Very well, Jim. Very good. Very well and good to be with you. Our, our pleasure to have you, and and so you know the Bucks again. And Chris Collingsworth said on the broadcast, "Don't give the ball back to Brady with 1:24 left on the clock because you know what he's going to do." And he did march them downfield. They get the game-winning field goal after the Cowboys thought they had done the same. And and this is what we're going to see out of the Bucks, isn't it? Well, I mean, it just seemed almost predictable. And and you know, watching Tom Brady last night, I, I was thinking about you know the way we're learning about sort of sports science and the way the brain works is a lot of it is just repetition, right? That you need to be able to anticipate and, and sort of have that split second glimpse into the future. When you've seen things over and over and over and over again, you can anticipate what's going to happen. That's a big part of the way athletes brains work in any sport. And when you think of Tom Brady with 22 years in the NFL, uh, the number of repetitions he's had, the number of situations he's been in exactly like last night in his career. Of course, the, mo- the reason most players never get to take advantage of that is their bodies <laughs> degenerate, you know, before they get to 44, at least based on the standards that they have to be to play professional football. And yet, you know, watching Brady last night, you could almost feel the inevitability that the Ticats, you know, the, excuse me, that the Ticats, that the Cowboys felt. Um, and, and that, that, that uh, that there was just a sense that, as you say, if they left him enough time on the clock, it was just a matter of time. And Brady, it was just kind of methodical the way he threw those three balls out of bounds and uh, to to narrow the clock, stop it, narrow the clock, stop it. It was it was almost like it was just written in a book somewhere exactly how you do it. Yeah, I mean, there's been other episodes of this. I mean, certainly uh, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers have done this. Uh, you think of the 49ers teams, uh, teams on top do this. But but this is the guy, and regardless of where he plays, it happens, and he does it at an age that nobody's done it before. And, and he really makes it, you know, the, the stupendous look routine, doesn't he? Well, and he's, and like, he's not only doing it at an age no one has ever, ever done it before. Jim, no one's ever played quarterback at this age. Like, never mind playing quarterback at <laughs> this well. Like, it's, it's yeah. one thing if you're still playing at an age that no one else has ever played. It's another thing if you're playing at an extremely high level that is kind of above uh, your competition. When you combine those two things, I mean, I, I just, there's no precedent in sports, never mind in football, that I can think of, you know, for an athlete who was, 
you know, the senior in his sport historically, not even of the current time, but historically, and was still, you know, an elite player. Uh, it just, it just doesn't happen very often. And, and like, you, you, certain look, quarterbacks get their reputations made by what they do in the final possessions. And it's just, it was just so, so calm and so methodical. And look, I, I thought it was a great football game. I mean, it, it felt like one of those games and they said it right on the broadcast where whoever got the possession last was going to win. And just, there was two quarterbacks that were bang on. And I mean, Dak Prescott returning from all that time off to have a 400 yard passing game against a team that essentially shut down the Kansas city chiefs in the Super Bowl last year. That wasn't a bad opener for him either. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could look at this, and somebody has actually said that that this team could go seventeen and zero. I I wouldn't jump on that bandwagon, but but when you're doing the the total season review on the Bucks, you might refer back to Week One and how close the Cowboys came to recording a rare victory against Tampa, and you know, there it was, it was theirs for for the taking, but they just couldn't get it done. Well, and and they say there was. You know, there was a play down on the goal line right before where Tampa could have cashed it in. And they would have gone up by, I believe it would have been nine with a converted touchdown. And that would have changed the dynamic. But, you know, that's, that's part of the game. When a guy fumbles the ball as he's going into the end zone, and that really is what set up Dallas to have that opportunity. And, you know, it, it's managing the clock is, is such a, it's such a skill. And when you've got the guy on the other side that, and Chris Collins was saying this on the broadcast all last night, right? Is that you, 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 you want to be, you're not playing for the field goal. You're playing for the touchdown. Obviously, when you get into a fourth and sixth yeah. situation, you're going to take that field goal. But the whole mentality of that drive for Dallas, you know, had to be one of two things and neither one happened. One, we've got to get in the end zone. So the Brady's got to get into the end zone to beat us. Or we've got to kick a field goal with it with a left as little time left on the clock, so he doesn't have time to get to lead his team to a field goal. And unfortunately, the Cowboys couldn't do either of those things, and ultimately that left the door open to Tampa Bay. So, Dave, as we progress into Week One of the NFL season, I'm going to divide this into a couple of categories. First category is teams on the spot, pressure on teams, and I've come up with off the top of my head: Bills, Rams, and Steelers. What are your thoughts? Well, I guess if you believe expectations are pressure, then then I would agree with that. I mean, I, and I, you know, I did a, I got an essay that's running on uh, Sports Center later, I believe it's uh, tonight at six o'clock. Um, you know, about that whole thing about Buffalo is that there has been there have been hope, uh, there has been sort of guarded optimism in the NFL in Buffalo over the last few years, but we haven't seen a team where there are actually expectations. I mean, the Bills were 13-3 and three last year. I mean, they were the highest-scoring team in the AFC. Uh, this is not about building confidence. This is not about you know, hoping that Josh Allen rounds into something. This is a guy who's being paid like one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL with a team that was 13-3. and three. You know, there's a stopper in the conference in Kansas City that everybody recognizes. But, yeah, there's certainly expectations and, and pressure on Buffalo in regards to that. And, and you mentioned Pittsburgh. I, but, you know, we're, we're at the, we're at, we're, the, the Steelers are about to pass the, the baton, the quarterback baton on at some point. Um, ben Roethlisberger has, you know, come out of that draft, the same draft that Eli Manning came out. He's retired. I believe it's the same draft that Philip Rivers was in. You know, he's moved on. And yet you've got Ben Roethlisberger, who's taken a lot of hits and a lot of blows and, and put himself, you know, in the Steeler uh, list of greatness but they're running out of time with him. And I think that's one of the other things to put pressure on the organization. And the third team you mentioned? 
uh, Rams just because they they rolled the dice in Stafford. So I mean, they're not they didn't do yeah. that to to sort of su- suffer, right? Well, no, and and I and you're right, and and I think the curious thing for there's kind of <laughs> going to sound sound like I'm saying the same thing, but I think people are as curious to see what the Rams are going to be like with Matthew Stafford as they are to see what Matthew Stafford is going to be like with the Rams. Just because yeah. you've had this guy who's been part of an organization that has had trouble getting stuff right, you know, for the last you know, 40 years. And you've seen players that were in Detroit that, you know, you know, walked away from the game, essentially part of it would feel like because they were in a situation where they didn't think that they were going to be able to flourish, whether it was Barry Sanders, whether it was Calvin Johnson, Megatron walking away. And those are two respectively all-time great players at running back and receiver. Both of them played their entire careers as Detroit Lions and never really established anything team-wise. And Matthew Stafford was kind of on that trajectory. So I, I think there's a lot of pressure on, on him and, and the Rams, I would say, this year with, with the move that they've made because, as you say, that's a now move. Uh, and the other category I have is all these young quarterbacks, uh, and there's just a you know young quarterbacks and, and quarterbacks on new teams, uh, which is uh, sort of at a record level for the NFL. It's happened periodically in the past, but I, I just wonder, like, how many of these guys do you think will have the positive impact that most people assume they might have? Not as many as people assume. And, and here's one of the things, and I've been doing some research on this last year, is looking at the number of teams that have quarterbacks who were drafted in the first round. And, you know, it's a very, very high percentage and a much higher percentage than, say, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I remember a story, I mean, I, I, mean, I was writing at the time, the Globe and Mail, so the early 2000s, where there were, there were more undrafted quarterbacks in the playoffs one year than there were guys that were first-round picks. You know, that was when Jeff Garcia was around, when Flutie was around, when Kurt Warner was around. Um, you know, and, and, and it was but, – but you've seen – what you've seen now is every year – there are quarterbacks that fly off the board early in the first round draft pick. And I don't think that necessarily means that those guys in terms of their stock and their talent and where they rank among NFL players are higher than the guys that were being taken in the second round, you know, a generation ago. I think what's happened is the, the, the way the NFL game has evolved and the emphasis on quarterbacks and certain types of quarterbacks, has every team kind of salivating that their guy is going to be the next Patrick Mahomes you know, or Josh Allen in, the, in this case now as we're talking about. And they're not all going to be. So just because a guy was taken 12th overall or 17th overall, um, like I, again, I think a lot of those guys would have been you know, guys that would have slipped down the draft a little bit. It's just the premium on the position has become such that we have more and more of these guys taken. And you know, if, if being a first-round pick or the upper half of a first-round pick guaranteed greatness we'd have a lot different look in the hall of fame so yeah i think there are going to be some guys that that there always are the guys that figure it out but you know it's not like every quarterback that's taken in the first round is going to be his team savior the way they hope yeah and it also depends on what what that quarterback's stepping into i mean he had stafford stepping into the lines there wasn't much development there for him so so that that's a that's a story for another day but let's move to the cfl week six is upon us 32 19 tiger cats over toronto on monday and friday night at bmo field tonight uh, you can listen to it on tsn 1050 you can watch it on tsn they they have the rematch no speedy banks for hamilton and quite frankly david that labor day game hamilton had their way and the argos did not i mean so not all of that gets repeated tonight what's your your take on the rematch well i think the big thing for hamilton one of the big things was that i was the first time they've had their starting front four out, uh, all together 
Laurent Hauser to Garrett Davis and Dylan Wynn making his first start of the year. And we saw a difference. I mean, they were in Toronto's backfield. The Argos weren't able to, ro- to run the ball. And ultimately, Simone Lawrence gets an interception late in the game because they're right in the quarterback's face in, in kind of desperation time. So you know, that was one of the things that Hamilton did very well. They've also seemed to have cleaned up some of the issues they had on the offensive line early in the season. Uh, and they've started to integrate some of the new receivers that they brought in this year that, that maybe weren't familiar with uh, you know, the schemes and the routes and those kinds of things. And you saw Tim White, who you know, is, a, is a guy who has some great athleticism, made a great stretch-out catch last week. So you know, here you have Hamilton to start out 0-2, and they scored, what, 14 points the first two games? Um, now, granted, playing at Saskatchewan and at Winnipeg are two of the toughest games on the, on the schedule, but this is a team that went 15-3 last year. The other part we can't ignore is the fact that they've, they've gone with Dane Evans. That's, it's been to injury, and Jeremiah Mazzoli is, is out again this week. But, you know, I, I look at that situation, and it seemed like the margin between deciding who was the starting quarterback and who was the, was the backup was about as thin as it could be. I mean, Alondo uh, Steinau was pretty clear that this was an open competition at training camp. He didn't name a starter until the very end of camp. Uh, and so now that they, they've struggled under Mazzoli and have thrived under Dane Evans, and I'm not trying to hang everything on Jeremiah Mazzoli for the first two weeks of the season, but I, I think it's going to be a real interesting question about uh, does he get his job back when he heals up. I, I would think if the Ticats uh, continue to score and the offense continues to move at the pace that they have of late, you know, that, I, I mean, that's a very open question. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and again, it's it's not to um, say who's better because I think they're both really good quarterbacks. Uh, it just seems to me that, that that offense works better with Evans. How about you? Well, I, I would agree so. And and I think part of that, as I mentioned, you know, he he's had more time. The offensive line has played better against him. They've been running the football a little better uh, with with him than they did. So there's there's other things that have happened in motion here. But you can't ignore the fact when you look at the point total. Like as you said, I think it's. Uh, what they get, 27 and then 32, sort of 59 yeah. versus 14. I mean, he, sure, there's other elements that go into that, but, but ultimately uh, having the football on offense is about scoring points, and that's something that Jane Evans has been able to lead them to do that they weren't able to do under Jeremiah Masoli. And again, different competition. I, I don't think Toronto and Montreal's defenses are, are as good as maybe Saskatchewan's and, and Winnipeg's are, but um, you know, you're not talking about that they scored – you know, three or four more points over a couple of games. They they scored forty five more. Yeah, big moment for both teams because it's the it's the back to back interdivisional games. Uh, obviously, Hamilton, if they were to win this, that would be three straight in their own division, which is a great way to climb up the standings. And if the Argos would, were to lose this, that would be two straight to Hamilton, which is not something you want to do. I just found on, on Monday that the Argos really couldn't develop their offense. They couldn't use it to to develop the game plan. And I just, if I was an Argonaut fan, I'd be very frustrated with that. But I would look for that to happen tonight. How about you? Yeah, I think the other thing they, they weren't able to run the ball, which is you know part of part of what sets up the pass, and and they had been able to do it certainly, uh, you know, in their previous game against Winnipeg very well. You know, going with two import backs with John White and DJ Foster, and DJ Foster I think is, a, is an intriguing guy. We haven't seen that much of. I mean, he he can run the ball, he can also catch it very well out of the backfield. I think that's something else they want to get going. But it, it was it was disappointing, I think, because you know we we had a we saw a very Strong start out of McLeod Bethel Thompson week number one. He's not able to follow that up the week after. Then they start Nick Arbuckle. They get a very strong start out of Nick Arbuckle against what has pretty much been acknowledged as the best defense in the league in Winnipeg. And then they aren't able to follow that up in Hamilton. So, you know, maybe this is something you kind of expect when you 
still talking about a young quarterback. I mean, Nick Arbuckle, that was his ninth start of his career. You know, he had seven in 2019. He's had two this year. You've got a lot of players in the Argonauts that were on other teams last year. And, you know, I think what teams try to build towards over the course of the season is consistency, but sometimes that can be hard to come by in the first couple of weeks of the season. And I, I, I think that's what we sort of, especially with, some of the other variables that have been thrown into the mix here. So I, I thought it was a you know, disappointing day for the Argonauts, um, but but not a terrible one. Okay, so triple header on Saturday. Saskatchewan three and one visiting four and one. Winnipeg, Calgary one and four visiting two and two. Edmonton and Ottawa one and three visiting two and two. BC. Really, you can circle that and go uh, big moments for Ottawa and Calgary in their respective games because you don't want to go one and four. You don't want to go one and five, which Calgary would. And, and Bo Levi Mitchell is on the way back, which tells me the injury sounded worse than it actually was. Yeah, I, I think there's two very different situations for these teams. I mean, I, I think Ottawa is a young team that we know probably wasn't going to be competitive for the division this year. But on top of that, they've got a quarterback crisis now. I mean, they went all in on Matt Nichols this offseason. I mean, he, he of course, has a history with Paul Apolis, the, the head coach in Ottawa, who was the offensive coordinator in Winnipeg. I mean, Matt Nichols threw for 79 touchdowns and more than 13,000 yards from the start of the 2016 season until he suffered that season-ending shoulder, shoulder injury in August of 2019. I mean, he, he secures the football well. He's not a dynamic guy. You're never going to fall over watching Matt Nichols' highlights tape. But he's a winner. He secures the football. He's a good leader. There were a lot of things that, that, they, that Ottawa felt that in a season where there were going to be all kinds of variables, and maybe they were better to go with a veteran guy who was familiar with the head coach as opposed to a younger guy who they're going to try to break in. That's why they went to Matt Nichols away from Nick Arbuck. And the problem is that Matt Nichols doesn't look like the guy who was throwing the football in 2019, whether he's got a tired arm or he's still regaining strength. I mean, again, it's almost it's more than two years ago that he suffered his injury, and that begs the question of, you know, is he ever going to be what he was before. So they're going to Dominique Davis, you know, who was their opening week starter a year ago. Um, you know, the number that jumps out for him is five touchdown passes and 14 interceptions from last year. He's in his sixth year in the league. I think this is now time for Dominique Davis. Not that many guys get opportunities to be a starting quarterback more than once if it doesn't go well. And I, I think the fact that they brought him back suggests that Ottawa believes he still has an upside and that there was more to his struggles in 2019 than than just his own performance, but you know, they, they need a strong performance out of Dominique Davis because I don't know how confident they feel going back to, back to Matt Nichols, and there isn't another experienced quarterback on the roster. They're already one and three. They're last in most offensive categories. Calgary's very different. I mean, Calgary, <laughs> I joked to somebody this week, I said they might be the best one in 14 in CFL history. I mean, they've, they've had close losses you know, in every one. You know, they, haven't, they haven't been really beaten in a game. Uh, decisively yet, their backup quarterback is the first CFL quarterback in the history of the league to throw for 300 yards three weeks in a row in his first three starts. When you pair that with, with Nick Arbuckle, who was the backup in 2019, throwing, in three of, throwing for 300 yards in three of his seven starts, that means Dave Dickinson, the last 10 games where he started a backup quarterback, he's got a 300-yard game out of that quarterback in six of them. So Jake Mayer isn't the reason they're losing. Bo Levi Mitchell is still a superior player, and he can make things happen, and we don't expect to see him throw four interceptions like he did when he played on a broken foot in the last game. But, you know, this is not a bad team. This is a team that's, that's had some turnover. Um, you know, the receivers are kind of the second group that have moved up to the first group. They've got a strong running game in Kadeem Carey. 
you know, they've had some issues on the offensive line from through through the uh, retirements from that in the offseason, and there's a debate about their defense. But I think Calgary can still recover this season. You know, Ottawa really is just, I think, trying to get some hope on this season. And, hope, and for their sake, they hope they can get some of it with the performance from Dominique Davis tonight in, in Vancouver. Dave, thanks very much. Tons going on. Enjoy your weekend. My pleasure, Jim. Take care. Dave Naylor, TSN Football Insider. So Cats and Argos tonight live here on TSN 1050 with radio play-by-play. And we've got the tennis and all kinds of NFL stuff wall-to-wall on Sunday and, and maybe more tennis. So we'll see. It's a fascinating time. This is what happens when you hit Labor Day. It, it's sort of you crawl into Labor Day and then it's like you're shot out of a cannon with all this stuff going on. It is marvelous, including the Leafs development camp. Kristen Chilton will join us next. This is Toronto Today, TSN 1050, tsn1050.ca, also available on the TSN and iHeartRadio apps. Now, back to Toronto Today. Toronto today, TSN 1050, Jim Taddy here until 1, then it's gameplay with Matt Cause and Overdrive, then Argonaut Football, all live here on TSN 1050 today. Tomorrow, busy as well, we'll get into that as we move along, and of course, Sunday, wall-to-wall football. Uh, let's talk about the Leafs now. Kristen Schulten is here, our TSN 1050 Leafs reporter. Kristen, welcome, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Jim, how are you? Good. I, I was really impressed with uh, the senior director of player development for the Leafs, Haley Wickenheiser, in her opening statement yesterday talking about uh, really raising the bar and, and looking for people that had been in the camp before, the development camp, to uh, show leadership and, and take the next step. I mean, that was a, a really impressive statement, and it sort of tells you, you know, where this thing goes as opposed to people just showing up and, and, and uh, not really moving forward, which really has to happen, doesn't it? Well, I, I think there's certain players at this camp that that is very true for. I think there's also others that, um, given that it's a very free agent heavy lineup of rookies amongst the 39, um, you know, a lot of those players, they're not ever going to see the ice with the Leafs, but there are a handful of players here that they're hoping are going to develop into players and uh, that they're going to use camps like this and the access that they have to People like Haley, um, you know, and and people like Danielle Goyette, whether it's Daryl Belfry, whomever it is, that there is an expectation that the Nick Robertsons and the Sami and Diargachinsevs, the um, the Alex Steves, the Ian Scotts, they're going to take advantage of the chance that they have to uh, really lead the way in terms of their work ethic and and their skill development and. Uh, this is a different time of year for this camp, absolutely. This would normally be happening in June, but uh, here we are in September, and, and they really do need to show that uh, those players that expect to be Toronto Maple Leafs someday, this is the time when they start to show why that is so that these player development uh, coordinators can continue to help them grow uh, into the type of NHLers that they want to be. I'm really intrigued with Nick Robertson just because uh, when you look at the Leafs roster, they've got all these possibilities and situations that could evolve. But if Nick Robertson was to force himself into that lineup by good play, he could actually, uh, you know, he could move up that depth chart. He could actually cancel out a lot of the concern, couldn't he? Well, I think that's a lot to put on, you know, a guy who only has played 10 games or in total, I think, so far. 
uh, in the NHL. I mean, he's so young. He'll be 20 years old tomorrow. Uh, he has only gotten a taste of really what this league is like, and he struggled enough trying to adapt to the AHL game in 21 appearances with the Marlies last year. So whether he could come in and, and silence any concerns about the Leafs' depth up front, whether he could uh, really you know, worm his way into a permanent spot in the lineup, it's probably too soon to even be able to have that conversation about, about Robertson because we haven't seen him, obviously, uh, in a few months on the ice. And, and uh, right now, you're thinking about, okay, what did Wickenheiser say about him yesterday? That, you know, can he be a depth player? Can he only excel when he's in that top six and he's surrounded by great players? What does it mean for him when he falls down the lineup and he's playing in the third or fourth line role? That's where he's going to be to start his NHL career, certainly, unless injuries force him up. Uh, but if you're really talking about getting the reps and being an everyday NHLer, that's going to be a bottom six role for Robert to start. So he's got to figure out how to bring his highly skilled game into a place where he doesn't get a ton of minutes and where the players around him are maybe older, uh, maybe not as skilled as he is. How does he rise uh, in those situations? So that's really where the growth has to come from, uh, as, as Haley pointed out yesterday. And, and that's, I think, what the Leafs are going to be looking at for him in this camp, and then when he goes into main camp, is just how is he using his skill set uh, across the board in every situation, not just when he's playing on the top line or the second line, and he's got a really good center and winger with him. I mean, that really is, I mean, what you said there really describes where the Leafs are. Uh, this is not a contest to show what you can do uh, for the Leaf roster. It's here's the role we have for you. Can you do it? That's where they are, aren't they? I'm, yeah, I mean, I guess. I think that's for most teams at this point, that's where they would be is just you have your established players, you have the guys you know are going to be in the lineup, and then you have the ones that you're not so sure about. And it's pretty easy to look at Toronto's lineup right now and say, okay, well, what do we need? We need a winger who's going to play uh, on the top line with Austin Matthews. We need uh, guys who are going to be able to fill out third and fourth line roles consistently, who will bring physicality, who will bring some grit, bring some toughness. Now, is that Nick Robertson? I don't know. I, I certainly haven't seen that aspect of his game yet where uh, it feels like he could be consistently physical or hard on pucks, and that's what the Leafs need from him, same as they do from SDA. Uh, and I just think if you're Robertson, you're eyeing maybe a second-line role for yourself. That's where you'd like to be, ideally. Uh, but whether that opportunity will be there, that's the question. And if it's not, what are you going to do instead? How are you going to you know, illustrate that you could be a successful third liner or even a fourth liner. Uh, look at what Adam Brooks did, you know, last year. He came in and became a, a really solid fourth line center for the Leafs, playing uh, with Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza. So it's possible to adjust your game uh, and, and really bring out uh, the characteristics that the team is looking for. But you obviously sometimes have to check your ego a little bit as well and say, hey, you know what, I might not be uh, in a really skilled position to start, but that doesn't mean that uh, I can't contribute and you know injuries are going to happen. So when they do, that's when if you prove yourself in a bottom six role, that's when you're going to see yourself get bumped up the lineup. Kristen, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Kristen Schultner, TSN 1050 Leafs reporter. Yes, hockey is in the air. So is baseball. And so the Jays open a four-game set in Baltimore tonight. 
It'll be Robbie Ray going for Toronto in the, the C series opener tonight. They, they play two. It's a twin spin tomorrow and, and wrap it up on Sunday. Uh, they swept the Yankees. Uh, this sweep by the four games by the uh, Blue Jays, uh, the, the Yankees never had a lead. So we were going over this earlier. It's the first time the Yankees have never led in a four game series at home since June 23rd, 1924 against the then Washington Senators. They played 1250 series of four games plus and led in every one of them. Unbelievable stat by the Jays, but it typifies where the Jays are just a half game out of the wild card spot. So that'll do it for this week on Toronto Today. We'll be back on Monday. Coming up next, it is gameplay with Matthew Cause as he goes over a busy weekend of sports with betting lines and all that type of stuff. Enjoy your weekend.